Uh, well, friends, I don't know whether you've ever been ice skating before, but I hate ice skating. Uh, I hate the feeling of stepping onto the ice and my body, you know, moving in embarrassing and ridiculous ways. Uh, I hate the feeling of unsteadiness on your feet uh, as your legs are about to give way at any moment. And so the best part of going ice skating for me is, you know, after you've done a few rounds of the rink, heading straight for the exit. And uh, in relief, you kind of stumble onto solid ground. Uh, that, that's a beautiful feeling. Uh, I hate ice skating. Uh, now, uh, we've been looking at the book of Psalms, as uh, we've said a number of times uh, this morning. And uh, today we're in Psalm 73. And with Psalm 73, we're actually uh, moving into book three of the Psalms. If you remember, uh, the Psalms is broken up into five books. We're now in book three. And uh, book three is quite a pessimistic book. Uh, if you read through book three, uh, you'll see that the, the historical background uh, of this book is different to the previous two. Does anyone know what the historical background of the previous two books have been? Any careful listeners out there? Anyone? I failed miserably. Um, if you remember, it, it's looking at the, the life of King David. Yeah, well done, Ronnie. Uh, life of King David. But uh, in book three, we're now moving into uh, the period of the exile. I think that's the historical background uh, when Israel were taken off uh, captive in the land of Babylon. And so the tone of this book is very pessimistic. Yeah, it was a very pessimistic time in Israel's history. And the king that God had promised in Psalm chapter 2 is nowhere to be seen uh, in, in, in this particular book. But in keeping with this pessimistic book, I want you to see that the psalmist in Psalm 73 uh, is really struggling with his faith. Uh, you know, he's going through a significant time of doubt. Uh, he feels that his faith is on slippery ground, uh, just like, you know, the man uh, who can't skate on the ice rink. And so he fears that he will stumble and fall and he will lose his faith in the promises of God. Uh, you can see it there in verse 2, can't you? Now, if you have your Bibles there, uh, in verse 2, the psalmist says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Have you ever felt this way in your uh, Christian life before? Have you ever battled with doubt as you've lived uh, as one of God's people? Have you ever felt that your faith was just hanging on by a thread? Well, if you've ever felt that way, then I want to suggest that God has some very important things to say to us this morning uh, in this particular psalm. Uh, why is this psalmist going through such a crisis, you might ask? Uh, well, you can see there that it's because there is, a, there is a huge collision between the psalmist's creed and what he observes in life. A huge collision between the psalmist's creed and what he observes in life. There's a huge gap between what the psalmist says he believes about God 
and his observations of the world which cast doubt on what he says he believes. You can see on the one hand um, there that his creed is that God is good and God is loving. Uh, It's there in verse 1. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, This is the creed that would have been taught to every Israelite child from infancy. It's the creed that would have come up on the projector screen if you went to the temple um, and recited it again and again over the years. However, you can also see that there is something that makes the psalmist doubt this particular creed that he, that he lives by. And that thing that makes him doubt is the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, in verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, the psalmist has been taught that it is the righteous who will prosper, and the wicked will be the ones who will be blown away like chaff in the wind. You remember that's what we saw in Psalm 1. That, that would have been the creed of Israel. And yet, when he looks around the world, he sees the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. And so he begins to envy the people that he sees, and he begins to doubt God's goodness. Now, he speaks at length there about the prosperity of the wicked, doesn't he? Now, you can see there that he observes with his eyeballs uh, certain things about them. Uh, in verses 4 to 5, uh, the wicked seem to be the ones who are living a troubled, free life. You know, they have healthy and beautiful bodies. They do not have to work as hard as the rest of the world. They are the A-listers. They are the socialites. They are the inheritors. They seemingly live perfect lives. Further, in verses 6 to 8, they seem to think that the kind of life they live is actually due to their own greatness. They, They are proud and arrogant, you might notice. They selfishly grasp at whatever their eyes and their hearts desire. They look down on others and oppress the weak in order to get what they want. And further, in verses 9 to 11, uh, you can see that they are also godless. They, they look up to heaven and they speak against heaven and the God of heaven. They swagger through this life as, as though they were God themselves. And what's worse, they even lead some of God's people astray. Uh, You can see there in verse 10 that the psalmist sees uh, God's people turning to the wicked and finding no fault in them. And so they also begin to doubt and they also end up walking the way of the wicked. But rather than being cursed by God, well, you know, these people, their lives just seem to get easier and easier and their bank balance just seems to grow larger and larger. And so the psalmist summarizes in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now, friends, I want you to see just how much anguish 
this particular collision between creed and observation brings to this psalmist. Uh, you can see there in verses 13 to 14 that he is in anguish because he wonders whether you know, he has walked with God and lived a righteous life all in vain. I don't think he's claiming here to be a sinless person. Uh, that's not what the righteous means in the Psalms. But he's simply saying that he's been earnestly trying to live God's way and yet now he's wondering whether it's all in vain. Uh, it's really empty. What if I've got it wrong, he thinks? What if it amounts to nothing? Further, uh, I want you to notice that he feels very lonely in his doubt. Uh, in verse 15, he feels like he can't actually share his doubts with God's people because, well, that seems like a betrayal <laughs> to uh, the, the tribe or the community that he's a part of. You see, uh, Asaph, who is the psalmist here, uh, would have been one of the song leaders uh, in Israel. And as a leader, he feels like he can't openly share his doubts. He feels lonely. He feels trapped. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever been on an escalator. I'm sure you've been on an escalator. Um, <laughs> And uh, you're on this escalator, but everyone is going the other way. Uh, have you ever experienced that? Um, a while back, I was uh, at Town Hall Station after meeting a, a, a friend early in the morning. And uh, after the meeting, I, I went down the escalator uh, to catch a train home. And, uh, you know, it was rush hour. And so everyone was on the other side, uh, you know, going up. And I was going down. And uh, I've got to tell you, it was a pretty lonely escalator ride that day. You know, it's hard when everyone seems to be going the other way. Uh, hard when everyone seems to be going up in life and you're the only one going down. You begin to wonder whether you've, you've missed something, you know. Now, there is this fear of missing out, isn't, isn't it? Uh, people speak about FOMO these days, um, the fear of missing out. Uh, that, that's what the psalmist is going through. Uh, now, friends, uh, I want us to just pause for a moment and try to feel the weight of what the psalmist is going through here. Because I wonder whether these are the struggles that you and I often face as Christians. We might not speak about it, but I reckon these are the struggles we face, isn't it? You know, perhaps... You're someone who has grown up as a Christian uh, and you've, you've been brought up with the Christian creed. Uh, you know, you've been taught by your parents that, you know, God through the gospel is good to you and so you can trust him. Uh, you've recited the Apostles' Creed and other such creeds a thousand times reminding us that God is good. And yet, you look around and you see your friends who don't walk with God and they seem to be doing really well. They seem to be prospering in their life. They seem to live a wonderful life, free from trouble and full of enjoyment. And you become envious. You wonder to yourself, have they got it right and have I got it wrong? Have you ever felt like that before? 
Or perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time and you've been work, working really hard to, to serve God and to, and to walk His way and to serve Him in your life. You've made considerable sacrifices of your time and energy and money, pouring it into the work of the gospel. And yet, you've noticed over the years, all these people who don't seem to care about God's work and living God's way and serving Him. And they're actually doing well in life. I mean, certainly, um, you know, your non-Christian friends don't seem to care about God and, and they seem to be doing well for themselves. But what's worse is that you also see people who claim to be Christians and yet aren't lifting a finger to serve God and serve his people. Indeed, you also have seen many over the years simply walking away from God and now the only place where you see them is on Facebook or Envy Book, should I say, where you see them fine dining, traveling the world, enjoying every pleasure in life, and you become jealous and you think, have they got it right and have I got it wrong? Now, is that me? Is that only me that struggles like that sometimes or is that your struggle as well? You see, friends, that these doubts are not academic, are they? We live in the same world as a psalmist where the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. And our faith can feel very slippery at times. Uh, what do we do when our faith feels this slippery? Where do we go when our faith cries out in anguish? Now, uh, in the second part of this psalm, uh, you can see a striking change in the psalmist. Uh, something has happened, and there is this great reversal in his thinking such that he can now embrace the creed that God is good with great conviction. And, uh, and friends, you can see that this is the case because he says that he has come to know certain truths about God that he, he now wants to embrace with full conviction. Uh, firstly, he has come to know that the wicked will fall. The wicked will fall. And you can see it there in verse 18, can't you, that uh, it is the wicked who are on slip, slippery ground so that they will fall to their ruin. Uh, you see, the psalmist thought that he was on slippery ground and he was about to fall, but now he's come to the conviction that it's actually the wicked who are the ones who are skating on thin ice. And they are the ones who will fall. In verse 19, it will be swift, says God. It will be terrifying. And in verse 20, they will be extinguished by God, just like a bad dream is extinguished from all reality the moment you wake up. Secondly, he has come to know that his future is glorious. Why is it glorious? 
Well, in verse 23, it's because he knows with full conviction that God is the one who grasps him by the hand. In verse 24, it's because he knows that God is the one who, who guides him through life, even through his doubts. And in the same verse, it is because he knows that God is the one who will take him from this life all the way to glory, everlasting glory. Now, that's why the psalmist says in verse 22 that he was ignorant like a beast. It's because beasts are incapable of taking the long view of life. Uh, you know, I, I have a pet dog. Uh, I'm pretty sure that she doesn't sit on a bed thinking, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? Um, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Is there enough in my superannuation account? <laughs> you see, when the psalmist was going through doubts, he was like a beast, just seeing what was in front of them. And yet something has happened here to the psalmist where he can now take the long view of life and see that at the end it is the wicked who will fall to their ruin and the righteous who will go to glory. And therefore, thirdly, he has come to see that if he is near to God during his time of doubt, then he has everything that is worth having. If he is near to God during his time of doubt, then he has everything that is worth having. Uh, for God is the one who grasps him and guides him and glorifies him, and he is the one who will bring him into glory for all eternity. Uh, that's why uh, the psalmist here can finish this psalm so confidently asserting God's goodness to him. Uh, these are wonderful words, aren't they? Uh, you can see them in verse 25. I'm just going to read them out. Verse 25. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion or inheritance forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see, this, what the psalmist has come, come to realize in his confusion and doubt is that what he needs most of all is for God to be near him. Uh, one of the scariest times for, uh, for my wife and I as parents uh, was when our middle child, Miriam, ended up in hospital as a, as a toddler. Uh, she had this eye infection, and uh, we didn't think too much of it at first. But then it got worse and worse to the point that she was in danger of actually losing her sight. And, uh, you know, we took her to hospital and we, we just felt so sorry for her, you know. She had all these tubes going in and out of her body. Uh, she was tied to a drip so she couldn't run around like normal t uh, toddlers could. Uh, she was scared and confused and didn't know what was happening. But do you know what she needed most at that time? you know what she needed most? Well, what she needed most was not reasons 
for why this was happening. Uh, what she needed most was to know uh, that mummy and daddy were near, were close, and that they wouldn't leave her side. Uh, that's kind of like what the psalmist is experiencing here, isn't it? Uh, it's striking that God never explains here the reasons for why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. But what the psalmist comes to know is that God is near, and if God is near, then he will grasp you, he will guide you, and he will take you all the way to glory. Uh, My wife and I couldn't make those kind of promises uh, to our little girl, but this psalmist knows that if God is, is near, then he has the strength to do this for him. Uh, but friends, uh, here is the million-dollar question. How does the psalmist move from his doubts to this kind of conviction? How do you get from doubting the creed to believing it wholeheartedly? How do you get from slippery ground to ground that is firm enough to support your faith? Well, uh, I think the key to this verse is in verses 16 to 17, uh, where you see the psalmist going into the sanctuary or the temple of God. Uh, Notice that verses 16 to 17 are wedged right in between uh, the verses that speak of his doubt and the verses that speak of his conviction. But what is it that the psalmist experiences in the sanctuary that moves him from doubt to assurance? Understand the question? What is it that the psalmist experiences in the sanctuary that moves him from doubt to assurance. Why don't you have a little bit of a think about that (laughs) with your neighbour and uh, see whether we can uh, uh, come to an answer together. I'll give you a few moments just to think about that. Uh, It's good to hear some lively discussion. Uh, Do we have some options uh, that we can consider? Uh, what, what does the psalmist experience when he uh, enters the, the sanctuary or the temple? Uh, what can be some possibilities here? Sorry, he, God. He went to God, yep, and God gave him the discernment. Yep, yep, thank you. That's one possibility. Yeah, I think um, uh, the, the temple was the symbol of God's presence uh, in, in Israel, wasn't it? And so uh, some people think that, uh, you know, he went into the temple and he experiences the presence of God and he somehow learns that the wicked are doomed and the righteous will be glorified. Yep, that's one possibility. Anything else? Yeah. Um, The the sanctuary uh, is another uh, word for the temple. Um, And so... uh, I'm presuming it's the physical temple of Israel, and so um, the the psalmist, like all of Israel, would have frequented the the temple. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. And where would he have seen that? Well, he would have seen that in the law. And uh, the, the law uh, is a big theme in the Psalms, isn't it? And so perhaps he went to the temple and he heard someone reading the law and he was reminded that God um, is, is someone who punishes the wicked and rescues uh, his people. Um, and certainly that's, that's what I thought uh, at the beginning of the week. <laughs> but um, uh, during the week I, I read something uh, really helpful that made me change my mind. And uh, this person asks, well... Yeah, just try to visualize for a moment, uh, if you were an Israelite and you walked into the temple, uh, what is it that you would have seen uh, in that temple? What did they do in the temple? Pray, perhaps? Sacrifice. Yeah. So I think that's the most obvious answer, that he would have seen the sacrifice of animals, people bringing in their bulls and Goats and lambs and pigeons, uh, sacrificing them and, and being slaughtered in sacrifice. And the point, I think, is that as the psalmist saw these sacrifices, well, he would have been reminded that God, his God, is a God who does not let the wicked go, if I can use that word. You see, it, sacrifice was meant to be a reminder to Israel that the wicked will pay with their blood. And so as the blood was being splashed around the temple, he would have been reminded that his God was a God of justice that will bring the wicked to account. But at the same time, as the psalmist witnesses the sacrifice of these animals, he would have also been reminded that his God is a God who draws near to his people through sacrifice. Draws near to his people through sacrifice. For these sacrifices were the way that God had chosen to atone for the sins of the people and so that he might draw near to them and give them a glorious future. And friends, I, I want to suggest that what Asaph sees so clearly at the sanctuary or at the temple is something that we can see even more clearly by going to our sanctuary, our temple, which is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ who was sacrificed for us. For it is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where those who have eyes to see can see that God is a God who punishes the wicked. You can either have your wickedness punished at the cross or you will have your wickedness punished on the last day when the one who rose powerfully from death at the cross will come to judge the world. A day that God has fixed, a day that God has guaranteed by raising Jesus from the dead. But at the same time, the cross reminds us that you and I have a God who is good to us, doesn't it? For at the cross, God demonstrates just how much he loves you and just how much he loves me in sending his very own precious son to be a sacrifice for my sins, for your sins, our wickedness, so that he might draw near to us 
And the Bible reminds us that if, if God has loved us so much that through this sacrifice he has grasped you to be his own, then how much more will he guide you through this life and bring you to everlasting glory? And so I just want to finish by saying that if you are here this morning and you are someone who is going through doubts and you are wondering whether God really is good to you, then God says, look no further than the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for you on the cross. Don't just sit and wallow in your doubts. Uh, In this psalm, the psalmist uh, says that he just couldn't figure it out on his own. When you're going through doubts, you you can't figure it out on, on your own. It will be a wearisome task, the psalmist says in verse 16. So don't just wallow in your doubts. In fact, we can even use our doubts sometimes as an excuse to continue to sin and to walk away from God, can't we? But there is no virtue in that. Don't just sit and wallow in your doubts and go further and further away from God. But come back to the cross and see at the cross that the wicked will be judged and the righteous will go to glory. And if you are someone who is trying to help someone at the moment who is going through a period of doubt, and no doubt as a church family we will often be sitting with people who are doubting, then uh, can I just say uh, it's important for us to be patient with people. Uh, I know that uh, I'm sometimes guilty of trying to push people too quickly to embrace the the creed, uh, thinking that somehow if they can superficially you know, agree to the creed, then they will be okay, even though their hearts are not embracing the creed as yet. You see, there is real anguish in doubt, and so our friends need our patience. And yet the best thing you can do for them is to continue to point them to the cross, continue to remind them that God is good, that God is loving, and that he has sacrificed his very own son for them so that, that, so that he might be near to them and so that he might bring them to glory. Now, our faith might feel slippery at times, but it is only at the cross where we find firm, firmness and solid ground that we can rest our faith on. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. Uh, We thank you that at the cross we can surely find firm and solid ground for our faith. Uh, Father, we are weak and uh, we sometimes go through periods of doubt. Uh, We fear missing out on what others have. We are envious, we are jealous. Uh, We fail to see sometimes that if we have you, then we have everything that we need. And so we pray that 
when we go through periods of doubt, that you would be with us through the gospel. Uh, Please grasp our hand, guide us, and remind us of our glorious future, even as you remind us of the ruin of the wicked. Uh, Please help us and strengthen the conviction of our hearts so that we might know that you are good and know that you are loving. Uh, Even though our flesh and our hearts may fail, we ask that you would be the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. For we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Amen.